So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me to uh, the book of Psalms, and we're going to be in Psalm uh, 72 this morning, and we're working our way, we're second week into our series called The Christmas Playlist, uh, The Psalms of the Season, and I've selected several psalms that will uh, be the highlight of our messages on the Sundays of, of December. And the message this morning, I, I titled, All I Want for Christmas, because if you listen to the lyrics of our Christmas songs, some of them that, are, that have been playing on your radios for quite some time, um, some of us just maybe a little bit more recently, uh, some of the, well, last week we talked that some of the songs have this lyrical undercurrent, the, the melodies take us and they remind us of warm, safe places, going, I'm, I'll go home for Christmas, and, and so we dream of whether we had a, a, a wonderful home in the family of our origin or not, uh, there's this deep longing in our souls to go to a cozy, warm, safe place like home. The fire's all aglow. There's another category of songs that fit into the category of all I want for Christmas, because the culture has taught us that uh, this is the season where we get lots of stuff. Right? How many of you have a Christmas list? How many have a Christmas list? How many have been asked for a Christmas list? You know, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question anymore. When I, if you ask me when I was 10, I could have rattled off all sorts of stuff, and most of it would have had to do with hockey or Legos. I guarantee it. But if you listen to some of our songs, I, I brought a couple of them here. You have the Chipmunk Christmas. And I've had this song <laughs> stuck in my head like an earworm all morning. I was singing it right here in the front row, not during worship, before the service started. <laughs> Some of you thought that. But these are the lyrics. Christmas, Christmas time is near. Time for toys and time for cheer. You know the song, right? We've been good, but we can't last. Hurry, Christmas, hurry fast. You, gotta, you know what it is? Now we get to the Christmas list, right? Want a plane that loops the loop? Me, I want a hula hoop, right? None of us, we should have all sucked helium before we did that. <laughs> then there's, you know, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. And so this is an old song, so forgive me if it doesn't come out politically correct for these days, but there's a wish of Barney and Ben is a hop-along boots and a pistol that shoots. Sorry. Um, and, and then there's the hope of Janice and Jen is, you know what it is? A, yes. Yes. Dolls that will talk and go for a walk. But if you listen, when you go home and you listen to the Christmas songs, you can listen for the ones that have that, those notes that take you to home and listen for others that just kind of come across as a long list of things that we would like to get, to receive. But I don't know if that's really what the season is all about. I mean, it's a season of giving. I mean, we celebrate because God gave us His Son, Jesus. 
to come and do some very specific things, forgiveness and salvation being at the very top of those. The, the psalm I want to get to in just a moment um, gets to a lot of things that maybe ought to be on our Christmas, all I want for Christmas list. There's a song that's out there these days. It's called My Grown-Up Christmas List. You know that song? It's a great song. Do you remember me? I, I sat upon your knee. I wrote to you with childhood fantasies. Well, I'm all grown up now, but still need help somehow. I'm not a child, but my heart still can dream. So here's my lifelong wish my grown-up Christmas list, not for myself, but for a world in need. No more lives torn apart. Wars would never start. Time would heal all hearts. Everyone would have a friend. Right would always win. Love would never end. This is my grown-up Christmas list. I want to read the psalm to you. Psalm 72 is the one that we're looking at this morning. And I want you to listen for all of the similar notes that we heard in the grown-up Christmas list. I think maybe a lot of those came from places in our scripture and deep in our souls that long for these sorts of things. And the psalmist expresses it like this. He says, endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones, with justice. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people, the hills, the fruit of righteousness. May he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. May he endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon, through all generations. May he be like rain falling on a mown field, like showers watering the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and prosperity abound till the moon is no more. Verse 11, may all the kings bow down to him, and all nations serve him. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. Verse 18, praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. That's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So to give you a, just a little background to Psalm 72, this is a, a psalm uh, a prayer that was used in the 
uh, inauguration of the kings of Israel. So when they came, when a new king was selected and was coming to their time of anointing and they would have this royal coronation, and if you can imagine the scene around Jerusalem, there are exciting days ahead. You know, some people may still be in lament that the old king uh, is not there anymore, um, and a new king is coming in, so these are days of excitement. And so, if you can imagine a, a parade, there's probably lots of uh, pomp and circumstance and noise and colors and dancing and, and, and music and the shofar blows and, and there's this grand procession to the royal coronation and then you have the high priest and the, the king kneeling down and the, and the high priest is anointing this king with oil and it's flowing down and soaking his hair and down into his robes and the people are praying this psalm over the king because what we read in this psalm is is the picture of an ideal leader it's a picture of what god intended for the kings now remember the people of israel originally didn't have kings but they they were jealous of all of the nations around them and they saw that all of these other nations uh, had a king and and god said no i'm your king you don't need a human king but they said no, God, we really want a king. Can we have a king, please? And God said, I'm going to give you a little bit of a warning because you don't understand what you're asking for. If you bring in a king, he's going to demand things. He's going to expect things. He's going to pull your sons into his military. He's going to tax you. He's going to do all of these things, and they're going to come across. There may be some blessings, but it's going to come across as maybe a little bit of oppression. But the people, nevertheless, we want a king. And so God sent them a king. And if you know the history of the kings of Israel, some of them were okay. There's a few, Solomon and David get a little more credit than some of the others. But for the most part, the history of the kings in Israel is not good. They really don't fulfill the prayer that's prayed over them at their anointing. You see, uh, this prayer is one that is asking that God would bring about his rule on earth through the reign of this earthly king, that the king would be godly and fair and look out for those who have trouble looking out for themselves. Instead of lining the pockets uh, and fighting for the rights of the wealthy and the strong, this psalm is calling them. It's a prayer for the king to defend the poor and the powerless. Did you, did you hear that in there? The psalm is about justice and righteousness being enacted throughout all of the land. And it's a desire that's as contemporary as it is ancient. We would like to see a world where all the wrongs are righted. It's kind of like a wish list for an ideal leader. A song of hope for God to work through the king. And we're reading this at Advent, and when we say all I want for Christmas is, is this on your 
Christmas list? Are, are these the things that inhabit the space of your prayer these days? Is this what you're willing to work for, to invest your life, to see enacted in our community, in our church, in your world, in your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood? Are these the things that you really want to go to bat for? Well, the kings of Israel didn't always do it well, and I would say if you look around, I don't know if we do a really good job of it either. Many times our version of justice is, well, I guess it's more selfishly motivated or it's punitive. Like, hey, we're going to get justice. We're going to get a pound of flesh. I was thinking this week, there's a couple kinds of justice that are evident in the texts that we read during Advent, particularly uh, this week. There's, there's a some complementary texts that go along with this particular psalm. There's a text in Matthew 3, and it talks about uh, John the Baptist. And then there's a text in Isaiah, and we'll, I'm going to read a little bit of that in just a minute. Uh, but one of the other texts, the one in Matthew, tells the story of John the Baptist, and we learn that he's this fire-breathing, axe-bearing prophet that's calling people to repentance, and he had a really strong message and a lot of stuff to say to the rulers of the land, you brood of vipers. If I, but if I had to just kind of paraphrase uh, the, his whole sermon into just a little bite-sized piece, it would be, repent or else. That's how John the Baptist comes across. So there's this there's this justice according to the law. And that's a good thing, right? We need to have some accountability to the law. It's what orders a society. And there's something that's deeply valuable about holding people accountable to the laws of the land. It's, it helps us. It's, it's a good thing. Someone breaks a known law, justice is what we would say is, is what holds them accountable, doling out punishment where punishment is due. How many of you, some of you may have just heard this on maybe a, a playlist, but, and some of you were actually alive when it was um, first recorded, I was not by the way. So this is, predates me, but there was a song back in the 60s by Peter, Paul, and Mary called If I Had a Hammer. You know that song? Yeah, you kind of, you, yeah. if I had a hammer, I'd hammer out danger, I'd hammer out a warning, I'd hammer out love between my brothers and my sisters, all this, all over this land. Uh, I'd hammer out. Sort of sounds like a hammer of justice, doesn't it? You're not behaving in these sorts of ways, and man, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna hammer you into place. You gotta straighten up and fly right, or I'm getting out the hammer. Well, I've, I've seen Christians swing a hammer of justice in not so pretty ways, and it bothers me a little bit. 
See, if, if, we, if the only tool that we ever develop, if the only tool in our tool chest is a hammer, then everything that we see out there that just doesn't line up according to how we think becomes the nail. And we beat down the nail. And we beat it into submission, and we pound it down. As Christians, when we see things that don't fit with our particular worldview, um, when we read the Bible and we see people around us out in our world that may not be living up to the standard that we've chosen, sometimes we swing the hammer because we're, we're, holding, we're trying to hold them to some sort of accountability to a standard that they've not adopted on their own. And that can deeply wound and, and bruise people in, in really unhealthy ways. If a hammer is our justice, and we just start banging away at people, at the government, at fellow believers, and in the, in the process, we're, we're doing some damage with this hammer of justice. And you know what's the worst? Sometimes I don't think we care how we damage people in the process. Because we're, we're so stinking self-righteous. And that's, that's ugly. And the psalm calls us to a better way. The psalm calls us to another kind of justice. The psalm calls us to justice according to the gospel of Jesus. With God, both of these things, justice and love, he holds them in perfectly in tension with each other. If it's left to us, we usually will err on one side of the coin or the other. We don't hold justice and love and grace and mercy well in tension together. It's either we'll err on the side of, you know, swinging the hammer, or we'll err on the side of sloppy applications of grace, and, oh, everybody just needs a hug, and we got to love, and I, don't, I just want to make sure I don't offend somebody. But as the people of God, we have a book that tells us over and over again that God loves us enough to hold us accountable. God loves us to enough, and he has a, a picture much larger than our own. He created us. He knows how we work. He knows how we tick. And, and so he knows that sin will absolutely and utterly destroy us. And so he loves us enough to hold us accountable and to show us that, hey, hey, kids, there's a better way. There's a better way. Let me show it to you. The psalm that we read today, we're reading it during Advent time, and we read it during Advent time because the psalmist is talking about what we would put in the category of the perfect king. A perfect king would enact all of these things in the land, and there would be equity and grace, and there would be love and, and, 
and the society would be well ordered and maintained. People would find peace. They would find shalom. They would find well-being and wholeness as part of living under the reign of this king because he is acting in accordance with what God had called him to. We read it during Advent because we're, we're getting ready to celebrate the birth. We're getting ready to celebrate the arrival of the one true perfect king, and that is Jesus. The psalm, way back when, points forward to the person that we are about to celebrate. See, if the truth of the matter is that if we're going to be held accountable to the standard of the law, we're all going to be found guilty. That's the truth of the matter. Every single one of us. Some, some people don't believe that. Some people will say, Dave, I think I'm a pretty good person. You know, I haven't done this, I haven't done that. Most people who will tell me that will also acknowledge that there is some sort of moral standard that's out there, whether they can define it or not. They'll say that there's something out there that uh, suggests that there should be some law and, and a way to determine what's right and, and what's wrong. Most people will grant me that. And so my question would be, whatever that is that is your standard, do you hold to it perfectly? And usually the answer is, well, most of the time. Well, are you okay with thinking most of the time is good enough for you? I mean, if we think about standards, uh, moral guidelines that we find in the Bible, you know, we would come back to, most people would say, well, there's the Ten Commandments. I mean, if you know what all the Ten Commandments are, let me, let me refresh your memory. This won't be a quiz for you. Thou shalt not have other gods before me. No idols or things that we would put in the place of the rightful place that God should have in our life. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Keep the Sabbath holy. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do you, you remember what Jesus did with do not murder? In the Beatitudes, or in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he goes through the Beatitudes as kind of his inaugural address, and then he starts in, and he re-ups on some of these Ten Commandments, and he says, well, maybe it's not about physical killing, but if you're angry at somebody, it's like you've committed murder. Isn't that what he says? So we would have to say that if we were to assassinate somebody's character publicly, that that would be in the category of murder, according to Jesus. goes on. Uh, do not commit adultery. Oh, Jesus has a good day with that one, too. Do not commit adultery. Well, there's the physical act, right? But then Jesus says, well, if you've ever had any lust in your heart, it's like you've already committed adultery with that person. <sighs> Come on, Jesus. 
Give me something. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. <laughs> do not covet. Anyone in this room right now do all of those things perfectly? No? Okay, well, let's make, it a, let's make it a little bit easier of a test. Remember when people would come to Jesus and they would want him to interpret the law for them? Oh, like, what really matters, Jesus? What, what really matters? Remember what he said? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, all of the rest of the commandments, all the rest of the law, hangs on those two things, right? Same question. Does anybody in this room do that perfectly? I'm waiting. <laughs> the answer is no, right? Not one of us does any of those things perfectly. We're all sinners according to the law. So all of us, God has the rightful place to get out the hammer of justice and beat us down. And the Bible says that the penalty for us breaking the law is what? Death. Complete separation from God. Now, that's heavy because we don't, <laughs> we don't like talking about sin for one thing. And we really don't like talking about our own sin. And we really don't like to talk about places where we know we have sinned and we're getting called out and we're being held accountable. And at the end of the day, a lot of us will come to the place, I don't know if God can love a person like me because I know what I've done. I would venture to say, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I think just about every hand in the room would go up if I asked if you've ever felt like that. I don't know how God could extend his grace to me because I know what I've done. I know what I've thought. I know how I've treated other people. And that's heavy. And that's a hard message. Fortunately, that's not the end of the story. We're in Advent, and we're celebrating the arrival of the perfect king who enacted justice in a little bit different way than coming and swinging a hammer. See, he comes to grant mercy. He takes the blow of the hammer on himself so we don't have to be hit with the hammer of justice. He says forgiveness and grace and mercy are found in me. Call on my name and you will be saved from the punishment of the sin that we have acknowledged that we have committed. There is grace for you. God loves 
every single part of you, even the parts that are sinful. He loves the whole person. And he loves you enough to send Jesus to die so that you can be forgiven for those sinful parts and that he can enter them and transform them and make them new into a beautiful, flourishing thing. We read in the psalm that his grace comes like the rain on a freshly mown lawn to keep it growing, to keep it vital so that we can thrive and we can flourish because without that we would wither and die this is what isaiah's prophecy speaks about he speaks about this different kind of justice he talks about this new day of harmony if you want to flip over or jot it down it's it's found in in isaiah chapter 11 and we normally think about stumps as being things that are just dead and we kind of grind them out and we want to get rid of the stumps because they represent death, but there's still sometimes a root system. And so Isaiah says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, something that we thought was just done and dead and gone. We might as well bury it and forget about it. No, God's not done with David's family line yet. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. There is justice as part of this God. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. There's grace, folks, but there's also justice. You see how God holds them perfectly in tension together? And then here's how it comes out. Grand reversals of how we would think these things would go. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. Say, what? If you've seen a wolf and a lamb together, it doesn't end well for one. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. Are you kidding? They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There's harmony that comes about when God holds people accountable, but does so with a measure of grace when we turn to Him. You know, to fully appreciate the the beauty and the wonder of God's grace and mercy. We have to go through that part of the conversation that sounds harsh. We, we have to hear the fire-breathing words of judgment and punishment because if we don't hear those, we'll never be able to begin to comprehend the magnitude of Jesus' sacrifice for us. 
This is how Jesus turns our notions of justice upside down. He's the one that's struck with the rod of justice in order to spare us. In, instead of the words, you are condemned, Jesus breathes out upon us, you are forgiven, your sins are taken away, go in peace. And all we have to do is is turn and and look at the gospel messages, the the gospel stories about the person of Jesus. I think of one in in John chapter 8. One day Jesus is in the temple. And there's some scribes and some Pharisees who are... They're just trying to catch Jesus in a trap on all of this mercy business. And so somehow they've gone out into the community and they've found a woman who was committing, she was in the act of committing adultery and they bring her, apparently she was alone at the time, they bring her and they fling her in front of Jesus. And they tell Jesus, hey, the rightful punishment is death. She ought to be stoned. What are you going to do, Jesus? What's the judgment? All you got to do is give us the word. We've got the rocks and we're ready to chuck them. And Jesus, I mean, can you imagine the raucous nature of this scene? I mean, these, these guys are angry. They're probably throwing dust in the air and, you know, just yelling and screaming and just waiting. For, they're all amped up and ready to go. And and Jesus is like, hey, time out. I gotta, you know, get down here. And Jesus starts, he just starts writing something in the dirt. What kind of response is that? You ever, I mean, my questions are like, what is he writing? Just writing in the dirt. There, imagine the scene around him. They're ready to kill this woman. Remember what Jesus says? He says, whoever has not sinned can cast the first stone. And then then he goes back to writing, you know, stick figures in the dirt here. Maybe he's writing the word, maybe he's writing in their language, grace, mercy, forgiveness. And John tells us that one by one, from the oldest, because they've been around the longest, to the youngest, they drop their stone on the ground. And the dust stirs up a bit. Another stone hits the ground. And pretty soon, pretty soon, everybody, everybody has left. And it's just Jesus and this woman who is laying there. And he says, where have all your accusers gone? Right? And he offers her a word of grace. He offers her a word of mercy and and forgiveness. But don't think that the extension of grace and mercy is him excusing her sin. 
He calls out her sin. He says, go and sin no more. There's an acknowledgement. Yeah, he broke the known law of God. These guys weren't wrong that your punishment should be that you're stoned. But I'm God. And I love you. And I can offer you mercy. I can offer you something that you do not deserve and you can never earn. And I can call you out of your sin. Go and sin no more. Go in peace. Go leave the life of sin behind you and move on to something else. You can thrive and flourish. We don't understand mercy all the time. There's one family that I know from another church that we served that they were trying to help their kids understand the concept of forgiveness, understand what mercy is all about. And so they put a jar on their kitchen table. And they had a time where they, they brought their kids together and they said, okay, once in a while we know that you break the rules of the house or you're angry with one another or you talk back to your mom or your dad or, you know, whatever it is that you just you break the known law of the household. And so you know that when that happens and we catch you, there's accountability, right? There's some sort of punishment. And so what we want to do is we want to talk to you about punishment. And, and so we want you to write on little slips of paper what you think would be appropriate punishments for some of these things. So the kids came up with their own punishments. Of course, they're approved by mom and dad. You can't say, oh, yeah, I lied to you. I should get a Twinkie. Now, that wouldn't make the jar. Um, maybe wash the dishes or make your brother or sister's bed or for a week or, you know, just things like that that were appropriate punishment. And they put them all, they put, them all, they put all the slips of paper in, in the jar. And what the kids didn't know is that mom and dad also put some slips of paper in the jar that said, you're forgiven. No punishment. So they put them in the jar and uh, a couple of the kids misbehaved. They, you know, pulled out a slip of paper. They had an appropriate punishment. But then there was this one time one of the kids, they did pr something pretty egregious to one of their brothers and sisters. It just wasn't kind at all. And they knew it. And they pulled out the slip, they pulled out the punishment from the jar, and it said, you're forgiven. Mercy is granted they just broke down and cried because they didn't know how to respond to that. I deserve the punishment. Make me clean the room for a week. And the parents are like, no, that's what it's like with God. We all admit that we're sinners, that we've broken the known law and standard of God. And the punishment for that, folks, is death and separation from him. But through his son, Jesus Christ, you get to pull out of the mercy jar the one that says you're forgiven. Go in peace. Live your life of sin. Leave it behind. And live 
into my love and into my grace. So while we wait during Advent, and we long for the day that Jesus will come back and return and rule the world with justice and righteousness, we as the church, we as his followers are called to embody his way of living out in the world. There's, there's a world that is starving out there for the justice of God's grace. And we're the ones who get to be the beacons of hope, the beacons of light to people. We're the ones who can remember that we have been spared from the punishment that God would be willing to dole out without repentance. And we can share that hope and that mercy with the people around us. So we have all sorts of wishes on how our world might be a better place. We may wish for our leaders to rule with justice and righteousness. But in the end, the psalmist recognizes that it's only the one true king who can ever satisfy those longings. To praise the Lord who alone does marvelous things is what the psalmist says. And so we find, we find that our real request is expressed in the words, O come, O come, Emmanuel. May the whole earth be filled with your glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.